The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, um, where do we where do we start? I think I'd like a newspaper that doesn't have any politics in it now. I'm just getting <laughs> fed up. Sadly, I don't think any of them do that. Um, so where are we going to begin? Where are we going to begin? I think we have to begin with the uh, the state of our democracy, as it seems to have yeah. been the discussion for the last few weeks. Uh, there's a lot to unpack in this. Um, when I say state of democracy, we're talking about the conduct of members of the House of Commons and to certain extent members of the House of Lords. We've never been here before. We we haven't. Um, it, seems, it seems like deja vu. For yeah. those of us who, you know, obviously grew up, I grew up in the 90s under the major government and sleaze was the word of the day, cash for questions, obviously with the cash for honours as well. Now it really seems to be about how MPs are held to account for their actions and there has been a series of things that have happened where there are at least two by-elections, possibly uh, three coming up, uh, two of which are related to uh, standards in public life. Uh, The Prime Minister, however, has addressed this head-on today uh, by insisting the UK is not even a remotely corrupt country. So the the background for this is um, the former cabinet minister and uh, Conservative MP for North Shropshire, Owen Paterson, uh, was found to have, by the, by the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner, who is an independent advisor to MPs on whether or not they follow their own rules, their own code of conduct, found Mr Paterson had broken the rules about paid lobbying in being paid uh, about £9,000 a month to uh, lobby for a couple of uh, businesses. And this is included using his parliamentary office to hold business meetings, which he is not allowed to do. MPs enjoy privileged access because they are, uh, in theory, elected representatives on behalf of people. They are, of course, perfectly entitled to lobby on behalf of uh, any cause that they seem to be fit. There is also an issue of... MPs having second jobs. Now, I would draw a distinction between the kind of paid consultancy, political consultancy, that Mr. Patterson has done and has now resigned from Parliament over, and MPs having another role in addition to their duties as a parliamentarian. It seems to me that that, that's incredibly sensible. I mean, those are pretty much how the rules are drawn, aren't they? You, you, You can... You can have another job. In fact, I mean, many of us would say that it's quite important that many MPs have experience of other life. What would we think the House of Commons would be like if everybody was a career politician and nothing else? And we've had some pretty impressive MPs in the past who have been well, not just lawyers, but doctors, all manner of things. Oh, John Reid was a, um, a working lawyer as well, wasn't he? The, was. the problem comes, doesn't it, that it, if... You know, there are rules against being paid to ask questions in Parliament. I mean, even David Cameron said that one of the great scandals was going to be to do with lobbying. Um, How prescient he was. Um, So, I mean, we have the rules. Are the rules not drawn up properly or they simply not being observed or not then being implemented when people are believed to have transgressed? Trouble is at the moment that um, 
there was nothing to stop. Uh, MPs are not allowed to directly lobby for money. That is something that is very clearly prohibited, not just by the parliamentary rules, but by also by the majority of um, standards of code yeah. of conduct for the public affairs profession as well. Uh, I work in public affairs. We're not allowed to engage parliamentarians uh, for money to lobby on our behalf. We can meet with them. We can persuade them through the through the merit of argument and you know th through uh, you know. Uh, no, no, no inducements that our issues may be important. MPs do have topics that they follow. This goes back, I think, to David Cameron and Greensill as well. That it's hard, mm. it's hard for a parliamentarian to argue that they passionately believe in an issue when they're being paid a lot of money alongside it as well. The loophole in this is that lots of MPs take on paid advisory roles where they're not directly lobbying, but they are basically providing counsel, providing advice to firms, sitting on boards of directorships. And in theory, there's nothing wrong with this. In theory, it is perfectly acceptable. But then you look at the amounts of money. The Observer had a list of 30 MPs who earned, some of them earn extra income of, say, £100 a year for doing a survey. Some of them write newspaper columns. Others of these have these directorships on companies, and inevitably, there's always going to be a political strategy element involved in it mm -hmm. as well. And Andrew Mitchell topped the list, the Conservative MP for Sun Caulfield. It should be clear there's no um, uh, sign of wrongdoing at this point, I'm not saying Mr. Mitchell's done anything wrong, but the amounts of money he's able to earn are eye-watering for most people. And I think for a lot of people, this kind of, this kind of uh, role, this kind of paid consultancy role, comes from them being a member of parliament these aren't former members of parliament these are current sitting mps who are accessing large amounts of money for doing work and providing their expertise in theory their access as well in the case of mr Passon, to companies and you can argue how should they do that at the expense of their constituents that i think is the issue that is beyond the pale in this thing as well yes the only exemption i would make in this of that observant list the one i thought that was very unfair. So most of the MPs and listeners were conservatives. The Liberal Democrat leader Ed Davey was on the list as well, uh, taking on these extra roles. The money, however, and the article I think didn't make enough pains to make this clear, goes towards supporting his disabled son. Mm -hmm. And there are people like Gordon Brown who do lots of um, work. Uh, he earned, I think last year, he earned over a million pounds from speeches and appearances and work, but all that goes to charity. Mm. But a lot of the time, this money goes into MPs' own pockets, and that's what many electors find. Yeah, the, my MPs weren't paid at all, were they, at the no. beginning of the 20th century? And then the problem no. was, of course, that when Labour started returning MPs to the House of Commons, of course, they had no other means of, of surviving. So it's difficult. But at the same time, what the opposite extreme would be appalling, wouldn't it? I mean, if everybody in the House of Commons was a career politician, well, I, would, I was going to say we'd have an even worse situation. I, 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 I hesitate to say that, but I can't imagine that would be very pleasant. I did read the other day, I hadn't heard, but Texas has a part-time legislature of which they're quite impressed. Um, they boast of this. I mean, I, I wonder whether many MPs, you know, uh, really have enough to fill. Well, they have plenty to fill their day, but if you took social media out of the equation, the fact that they've all got to be seen to be doing something. I can't help feeling that one of the problems we have with Parliament is that politicians, and in this instance, particularly perhaps our Prime Minister, have to be seen to be doing something the whole time, when quite often doing nothing might actually be a more sensible uh, sensible option. But where do we go from this? Because that you, know, you, you can't sort of say, if any MP is a doctor, for instance, we can't say, well, you can't work as a doctor outside Parliament. 
So how do we draw up the rules? I mean, it sounds from what you said as if it's the lobby, despite the eye-watering amount of money that some people make, it's the problem is lobbying, isn't it? Is being paid in order to actually to try and influence legislation. Politicians should not be allowed to take on paid lobbying roles. It does a disservice yeah. to their constituents, yeah. it does a disservice to Parliament, it does a disservice to people like me who work in the lobbying industry yeah. and are, you know, who have very clear standards and wish to abide by it. It makes the rest of us look like mugs. And I said the same thing with the David Cameron Greensill scandal. I remember. You, we could ban MPs from having second jobs entirely. We could say that parliamentarians have to have no other role outside of being a minister or being a parliamentarian because you get some people that say £80,000 is more than enough for them to do that. If you read Isabel Hartman's excellent book on why we don't get the politicians we deserve, one of the issues she picks out is that our MPs have to wear several different hats. Mm. They are, first and foremost, the constituency representative, uh, often described as a glorified caseworker. Uh, they do have an immense amount of clout because they do have uh, a platform and a, a pedestal. And I see this a lot in my local MP, Stella Creasy. She's a very vociferous campaigner on a variety of issues. I argue she uses her pulpit very effectively as well. MPs are also, however, you alluded to, they're not just um, part-time legislators, they're full-time legislators. MPs are expected to scrutinise, examine legislation in the same way and do that alongside the constituency mm. work. Many of them work on select committees as well, holding the government to account. So, you know, for example, select committee chairs. Some of them are, take part in all party groups as well. There's also the question of wider parliamentary activity and issues they might want to lobby on personally. So MPs have to wear three or four different hats. Now, this isn't me to say that you should feel sorry for them. I think actually our system works quite well in terms of the direct representatives. But if we want to have quality outcomes, I would argue the root of this is, of course, to tackle it at the source, which is to do with the money. And this goes to MPs' expenses. It goes to the short money that we pay to opposition parties as well. The state must take a more active role in considering whether our politicians are properly resourced. This means, first and foremost, scrapping the expenses system, which is a ludicrous, Byzantine, and utterly ineffective way of politicians recouping costs. Secondly, ensuring that politicians pay keeps pace with the fact that they can uh, arguably attract a competitive salary so they're not tempted or have no excuse mm. for being tempted. Um, thirdly, creating specific and tighter allowances, more generous allowances for staffing to ensure they've got the resources they need to do their jobs properly. US senators and congressmen have 15 to 20 staffers and they need that to do their jobs. They cover huge areas, as do RMPs. And finally, removing any problem for, for example, say issues of accommodation by creating dedicated standard parliamentary accommodation in London near the House of Commons that MPs can use. So there is no need for these ridiculous second homes now as well. There should also be a clearer enforcement of standards around declared interests. And I specifically refer to the fact that the Prime Minister took a holiday from the Goldsmith family. We do not know how much it was worth. We do not know. We will never know because he is not declaring it. And the reason that Boris Johnson has insisted the institutions are not corrupt is because he himself has been found to be wanting several times in this area. And he's very keen to avoid scrutiny, unsurprisingly, because it's Boris Johnson. Yes, all um, rather... Depressing, as I say. Yes, I'd like a newspaper that has no politics at the moment. But the, but the problem is, we it's got to be got to be tackled. I mean, we have a less corrupt parliament, perhaps, than many other countries. But that's hardly a defence. We we, we we would ideally like a, a parliament in which you can point at it and say that there is no corruption whatsoever. I mean, surely that you know there is a gold standard, and we are far from that. I, I, I'm I'm very loathe to use the word corruption because I don't believe this practice is entirely widespread. I think the rules themselves are flawed. I think there are MPs who clearly have taken can find take advantage of it as well. 
I also think that, to be honest, from the electors' perspective, that we have to insist on better standards for politicians as well, and that includes adequate resources. The trouble is we have wanted to have better politicians for the last two decades, mm. but not wanted to put the money into it as well. And arguably, you need to remove any sort of temptation for financial inducement as well. You need to ensure also that the government cannot do what it did last Wednesday and use its parliamentary majority to ride roughshod over a clear and effective standard system. Yes, the, clear, the current system standards is not perfect but it did catch Owen Patterson now it identifies when Boris Johnson yeah. falls short what it lacks is teeth and unfortunately the real issue that politicians have come up with time and time again is that MPs are left to police themselves against competing expectations now yes many of them are are finding I believe are found wanting but the thing I find time and again is the politicians that I work with day to day are well-meaning public spirited people and they want to do well if we take an optimistic tone away from this is that the rest of them are being let down yes this is a particular problem to the conservative party as well and the prime minister must grapple this and tackle his own behavior as well but we also need a clear and effective system that re removes any possible incentive for financial inducement, allows MPs to undertake work that is meaningful. And by that, I mean, if they are doctors, if they are lawyers, not like Jeffrey Cox, where he's able to go off and earn £400,000 a year doing his other role. He's clearly not devoting his time to his constituency, but MPs benefit from outside experience as well. So we need a balance for that system mm -hmm. as well. But we must also allow better transparency for gifts and inducements, including those that have been given to our Prime Minister. This goes to the top of the Conservative Party, I would argue not Parliament as a whole. Yeah. And as you say, it must be incredibly dispiriting for the, those MPs who are hardworking, decent people who would like to see an end to this. It must be you know, fairly awful for some of those that you meet. Yeah. Anyway, perhaps time for us to, to uh, change topic, uh, Mike. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. So, Mike, where are we going to go now? I, well, I've, I've got, I think I know where we're going. Uh, my heart doesn't exactly sing at the prospect. <laughs> well, uh, you talk about these, these topics that we have, Simon, becoming um, depressing, but a lot of them are are linked and I think you know we, we've touched I think on corruption they would touch on MP second jobs and lobbying but I think it's important that we look at Brexit now as well so this is to do with the issue of prime ministerial uh, patronage uh, in the fact that the the Brexit minister Lord Frost is um, Boris Johnson's one of Boris Johnson's closest uh, ministerial allies but we still haven't had even in the nearly two years since the Prime Minister agreed uh, his deal with the EU, uh, a meaningful resolution to the issue of Northern Ireland. And unfortunately, the, the question has now become uh, whether or not a key part of the deal between uh, the UK and the EU that was agreed, uh, as I say, two years ago, is going to be suspended. And I'm talking, of course, about the Northern Ireland Protocol and Lord Frost, who is the Prime Minister's Brexit Minister, has said that suspending that part of the deal will be the only option if the UK and EU talks fail to resolve the problem. Um, the issue has been is that the, uh, the protocol was agreed two years ago with the aim of preventing a hard border across the island of Ireland. 
But those who are against it, which include the majority of Northern Irish political parties, including ironically the Democratic Unionist Party, they argue that the protocol is disrupting trade and undermining Northern Ireland's position within the UK. Article 16, not to be confused with Article 50, <laughs> or any other sort of article. Article 16 is a measure which allows the UK or the EU to take unilateral action if they believe the arrangement is causing serious problems. What is very interesting in this though, and speaking to colleagues of mine who are based in Northern Ireland and work there, is that the polling is finding that actually the protocol itself is not top of voters' minds over there, bearing in mind we're going into uh, an assembly election at Stormont early next year with the DUP uh, training badly to Sinn Féin in the polls. And there's all sorts of repercussions there if uh, Sinn Féin were to emerge as the largest party. It potentially, even there could even be a nationalist majority within the assembly for the first <laughs> time as well. But the haggling that's gone on behind the protocol reflects the simple calculation that Boris Johnson has always made that he could push something through and deal with the consequences later. And this is just another example of it's happened with the uh, the people of Northern Ireland who have been largely, unfortunately, been political um, footballs yes. since uh, the referendum five years ago. So what do we think is going to happen? I mean, there are lots of sort of noises about possible suspension of Article um 16. And, and perhaps you ought to explain what suspension of Article 16 means and why it's there in the first place. So the, the Article 16 is effectively there as a failsafe because um, what was promised and what was delivered by the UK government, I have to stress the UK government here because it would be unfair to place uh, the blame of this on the EU. The UK, Boris Johnson's government, chose to accept a revised backstop where there would be uh, some checks on goods moving to and from Northern Ireland. Some EU rules still apply under the protocol, but Article 16 allows this to be unilaterally suspended if this doesn't seem to be working. Diplomats close to the discussion claim that the UK wants to eliminate checks altogether and ensure that only goods going through to Ireland are checked. But the EU, who are very clever in this regard, by the way, and don't forget, proposed this solution of a UK-wide backstop that Theresa May tried to get through Parliament. Her Brexit deal looks better and better by the day. The EU doesn't have any idea how they can achieve this as well. And you must, mustn't forget that this isn't a nationalistic issue as uh, Boris Johnson and David Frost make it out to be. The EU wants the Good Friday Agreement to succeed as much as the rest of us do. There is no issue here in terms of trying to find a, a non-partisan solution, except for the fact that the UK government is trying to cover its own tracks. At the moment, goods are checked uh, from Britain as they enter Northern Irish ports and then goods can move across into the Republic of Ireland as well, because there's effectively that customs border mm. down the Irish Sea, but a national border across, because the UK and Northern Ireland are still technically outside the EU, but current bits reply, apply in very small amounts, if EU rules apply in very small amounts to Northern Ireland at the moment, but suspending the protocol would suspend those and effectively put a hard border in place, which is what we've all been trying mm. to move for. The issue is, of course, as well, is that suspending the Northern Ireland Protocol does undermine a key part of the trade agreement and it might be that simply the EU simply chooses to pull out of it altogether and leave us back in a case where a no-deal Brexit is effectively once again on the table. Okay, it's a subject we're going to come back to again and again, isn't it? And we've talked about it so, so many times. Um, let us pause for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator uh, Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. So um, let us turn our attention to, to Glasgow and the great and good who arrived in one of those 400 private jets to lecture the rest of us about how we shouldn't be traveling around in jets and we should be uh, helping to save the planet. Um, so what on this happened? I mean, it's, 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 it's a full fortnight, isn't it? It is a full fortnight. So if you're tempted to think the COP was over last week because the, 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 uh, the great and the good, as you say, descended and mm. uh, sought to uh, kick off the climate change argument. Um, COP25 was the landmark Paris climate change agreement where all parties uh, signed up to a... Um, a, a global agreement to limit temperature rises to 1.5 degrees. The issue has been, and this is to, to say, to give some credit, I think, here to the Prime Minister, that a lot of the uh, tricky details were left to decide until COP26, which the UK has presidency over. Uh, Boris Johnson and his COP president, Alex Sharma, have had a very difficult task of trying to get countries to commit to stronger carbon cutting mm -hmm. targets and a draft agreement from the summit that's come out we're expecting this to hopefully be signed off at the weekend um, suggests that more vulnerable countries could get help in in combating the impacts of global warming but it also says that countries need to submit long-term strategies for reaching net zero because don't forget the uk was a pioneer in this not in the sense that we have a plan for doing net zero but in the sense that we wrote the commitment into law and now very much like boris johnson's other things we're trying to find out how to actually reach that. Countries like the Marshall Islands have made it very clear that a low-lying um, Pacific atolls have made it clear that anything more than 1.5 degree rise in global emissions would be devastating for them. Um, scientists are saying that even keeping uh, global temperature rises within that limit would still require a 45% cut in global emissions by the end of the next decade, by the end of this decade, I should say, by 2030, and to zero by uh, 2050. Countries like India haven't signed up, unfortunately. They've committed to decarbonisation by, uh, by 2070. And um, countries like China and Russia haven't gone to the summit at all. They haven't sent their political leaders. So Xi Jinping and, uh, and um, uh, Vladimir Putin haven't been present. There has been progress on issues like Australia. Um, Scott Morrison wasn't going to go, but he did. And of course, we must remember that Australia is a massive exporter of coal, particularly to China. And China's pledged to curtail its use of uh, not stop funding fossil fuel projects mm. overseas. But the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's cut a very lonely figure at this conference, I think, because he is effectively trying to push uh, projected emissions down even further and the pathway to 1.5 degrees of uh, even then we're talking about mitigating damage isn't clear and again it, it might just be falling to what Greta Thunberg said when she spoke last week just simply amounting to more blah blah blah. Hmm. Well, there seems to be quite a lot of that. One of the problems, of course, is, is that no matter how much we as a country reduce our emissions, one of the problems is that if we're emitting less, the chances are we're then buying from other countries that are appalling polluters. Um, I mean, China, you mentioned that one thing to China in particular. Um, so it's a worry. We can be incredibly virtuous, but really, unless every country is in lockstep, does it really help? It's not does it help enough? 
it's, it's also a red herring to, to focus too much on China here. Yes, if we look at global emissions today, China does account for 27% of them, followed by the United States. But we mustn't forget that in the case of China and the US, we're talking about an industrialized society uh, that is rapidly moving towards becoming a post-industrial society, mm -hmm. or in the case of America, a country that's post-industrial but effectively prides itself on energy security. We really need to be putting greater pressure on countries like India, like Brazil, like Nigeria, who are rapidly, going to be rapidly industrializing over the next 20, 30 years and will rely on fossil fuels in their perspective to achieve that. They have to show, this summit has to show that decarbonization Reduction in emissions, a commitment to net zero can go hand in hand with economic prosperity as well. And the UK can lead the world in this way as well. We have done a lot of meaningful progress in removing coal from our own generation as well. But we have to be able to prove that there is technology out there that can sustainably meet the demands for better living standards Economic growth, which is still the primary goal of most of these countries, understandably, because being lectured by a lot of rich post-industrial nations who've had this boom, had this advantage, is effectively sticking in the core of countries like India yes, as well. Because yes. they say, are, are, you're effectively asking us to stunt our progress to meet a commitment that you guys have already benefited from. But I'm an optimist. I believe that something can be done here as <laughs> Can't well. Can't believe no, anybody with such an no, interest in politics could still be an I am, optimist. I've somehow, I somehow maintain my optimism. <laughs> And one of the things that I think actually we, the UK, can do is I, I would encourage Boris Johnson, if he wants to, to make to leave a meaningful legacy as prime minister, to use his remaining two years before the election to set out a meaningful investment on the path to net zero by 2030, bring that goal forward 20 years, rapidly decarbonise. And if he claims, as he often said, the UK can benefit uh, from being the, the leader in net zero technology, we can help other countries move in that direction as mm. well. It's not just about China, it's about those countries that have to be rapidly industrialising or want to be and don't want to be left behind. Mike, okay. Well, nice to end on a slightly more positive. <laughs> no, I did my there best. hasn't been I did much my best. positivity or optimism in the earlier part of our conversation today. But my thanks to uh, Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, I hope you'll be back with me in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.